Hello and welcome to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, a Rotten Tomatoes approved film critic, the greatest living American writer, a rock critic of great renown, and the editor in chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more, and we do this show for you every week out of the goodness of our hearts and the idleness of our time. I am happy to announce we have a great show for you this week. We're going to talk to Daniel Cohen about the ongoing Jeopardy Tournament of Champions. Daniel and I are both former Jeopardy contestants. I am a former Jeopardy champion myself, although I never played in the tournament, and we're going to break it all down for you. I'm also going to talk to Scott Gold, our frequent contributor, about two new shows airing right now about vampires, Interview with the Vampire and Let the Right One In. Both are reboots, adaptations of classic vampire properties. And we're also going to talk to Jim Sullivan, Book and Film Globe and Rock and Roll Globe contributor, about the new book by Bob Dylan, Nobel laureate Bob Dylan, The Philosophy of Song. We will not feature any Bob Dylan songs on this week's show because our show is now popular, which is good, but that also means we can't feature songs because they are expensive and we want to keep the show on the air. So go listen to Bob Dylan in your own time and come right back in just a second to hear me talk to Jim Sullivan about the new Bob Dylan book. Now, ordinarily, a book discussing a, a song lyrics would not necessarily be a top priority item for Book and Film Globe. I mean, technically, any book is, is fair game, but when that book is by a Nobel Prize laureate in literature, you have to pay attention. I'm talking about Bob Dylan, uh, Nobel laureate Bob Dylan, and he has a new book of essays out called The Philosophy of Modern Song, in which he discusses know, songs he likes or thinks are important and why. And uh, Jim Sullivan, a uh, rock critic uh, of, of many years and a contributor to both Rock and Roll Globe, our sister publication, and Book and Film Globe, uh, wrote about it for us. And he's here today to talk with me about philosophy of song. Hello, Jim. Hello, Neil. Yes. So, um, so what is this book? What is what is Dylan up to? I mean, he's this is an eighty-year-old man talking about the music he likes, sort of. Uh, yeah, sort of. <laughs> uh, well, it's somewhere between uh, kind of a philosophical take on uh, what he likes and rants, kind of uh, off the cuff or seemingly off the cuff um, exposition, uh, almost seeming like acid fueled at some point in there. Uh, the way they sort of go off the rails in terms of starting with a song and what a song means, and then Dylan extrapolating it way out and into the other world, sometimes of comedy and maybe even of uh, of uh, parody. I mean, it's, is it's, it, it's a strange book in many ways. But yeah, well, you know, it, it's like, okay, is he thinking, you know, he didn't win the Nobel Prize in literature for his prose writing. He won it for his song lyrics, you know. That, right. they, didn't, <laughs> they didn't award it to him because he's, you know, he is some kind of master book writer. Uh, and and I, I actually am not sure. Has he written a book before? Yeah, he did Chronicles uh, back in, I think it was 2003, 2004, which was a but autobiography of sorts. Uh, there was truth in it, but there was fiction in it as well. And I guess in some ways that kind of prepares you both for this, uh, for the radio show he did 
on Sirius XM a while ago, same sort of thing. And then, of course, the uh, movie Scorsese did uh, about the Rolling Thunder review, where there was truth and fiction liberally mixed together. And it was sort of up to you, the viewer, reader, listener, whatever, to decide what might actually be true. And in that movie, of course, we found out Sharon Stone was not actually a 17-year-old groupie on that tour. You know, this book, I mean, at least from the way you describe it, it seems like the kind of thing I made fun of in my novel, Never Mind the Pollocks, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, but that book was making fun of like Robert Christgau and Griel Marcus and sort of pretentious <laughs> rock critics. But, you know, this, um, the the things you quote from this book, they, they seem very reminiscent of like overblown rock writing from a bygone era. Or, or it may be a bit what you did in terms of parody of that. Um, you know, there, there are places, and one in particular I found very amusing was the part he was writing about Elvis Costello. And uh, he was talking about how Elvis packs so many ideas into his songs, especially those early songs, the first three albums, uh, that you kind of get lost. You're, you're overwhelmed by so much information in such a short space. And, you know, you get done that passage and then you go, wait a minute, Dylan's the guy who wrote Subterranean Homesick Blues, which is exactly that. So I have to think Dylan's maybe taking the piss out of himself a little bit in writing that way and possibly uh, a little bit out of rock criticism for for writing that way. Uh, So it kind of goes between these sort of passionate, overheated uh, descriptions of songs and what they mean and then, like I say, kind of going a bit off the rails on that. You know, it's a, the selections are, are weird, too. Like, he picks Elvis Gussell's Pump It Up. Right. He writes about uh, Roy Orbison's Blue Bayou, shares Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves. You know, he's not writing about, like, insane clown posse songs here. These are, this is like a very it's a very, it's a very boomer list, you know? It's like he's not, he's not writing about uh, BTS. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, no. No, he's, I mean, there's no criteria for what song makes the cut or doesn't make the cut. That's just sort of, there's no introduction whatsoever. He just lays them out there. Uh, what is it, 65 uh, essays, uh, some longer than others. But yeah, all of them steeped pretty much in his, uh, you know, what his wheelhouse would be, which would be uh, folk music, country music, R&B, soul. Uh, not all of it from, you know, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s, but you know, a lot of it that way. Uh, he doesn't go terribly far into what I would call modern music, 21st century music, late 20th century music. And, you know, there are genres, as I mentioned in the story, that he just simply doesn't touch, punk, prog, uh, hip-hop. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of things, metal, for instance, uh, that uh, are just outside of his purview. And that's fine. There's no reason for him to be, you know, tokenistic about it and go, I must include something from every genre because obviously most of these genres don't touch him in the least. Yeah. So he's, he's dwelling on the things that, well, matter to him in some way. Uh, although some of the selections obviously are a little tongue in cheek, seeming to me anyway, the Cher song, for instance, I love it, but it's kind of sticky, you know? Okay. So, so talking, talking about that, he writes an essay about the Eagles, witchy woman, which is a song that, we have to deal with because it exists. Uh, (laughs) Loathsome number. So, so annoying. And you're right. I'm going to quote, because you quoted an interview. I'm going to write this. This this prose is as you put out, pointed out very purpley. The witchy woman is the homeless woman, the woman with the worldview, the progressive woman, youthful, whimsical, and grotesque. 
the lips of her cunt, okay, are a steel trap, and she covers you with cow shit, a real killer diller, and you regard her with suspicion and fear. Rightly so. Now, I don't know. First of all, I thought Witchy Woman was about Zelda Fitzgerald. <laughs> as far as I know, that's, that, that, that's the subject matter. Um, second of all, it just sounds like, like an old man ranting uh, in the middle of the afternoon over a beer. I don't know. Like, yeah, well, that, that was <laughs> the, uh, when I was saying off the rails, that was my favorite example of these where, you know, and I think, as I said in the story, I think I said, yeah, that's exactly what I thought when I first heard it in 1972 coming out of the radio. Um, you know, I mean, it's so far afield, you can't help but smile and, and kind of laugh at it. Uh, or with it, <laughs> depending upon your take. And, and I, I have to think in some ways Dylan you know, expects that or even welcomes it um, because it is so far gone. <laughs> that, uh, And also, of course, Witchy Woman, you know, I mean, if you must pick an Eagle song, <laughs> and I don't think you must, but if you must, Witchy Woman, really? Well, it means something to him or it doesn't. It means he, he might just be playing tricks on us like he always does. Well, that's the thing. And that's the one of the points of the story, Dylan, the trickster, the Joker man. And, uh, I, you know, I, I was talking to a friend the other day about it. And he said, he read the review and he said, this doesn't seem like a very good book. And I said, well, or he said, it seems like it's a terrible book. And I said, no, 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 it isn't. It isn't a terrible book. But I would suggest maybe you don't buy it. Maybe you want to borrow it and skim through it. You know, you don't maybe want to put down that kind of investment on something quite you like this. You can sample it. You can sample it like a sample. sample like a sample. sample. It. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the one thing I, I did like very much was his take on Warren Zevon, uh, who was a friend of his and uh, who he covered in concert, uh, especially as Warren was nearing the end of his days. Uh, Dylan did three of his songs at times. Dylan went, I mean, uh, Zevon went to one of his shows to see it. And you know, his appreciation for Zevon as a very, you know, underappreciated singer, songwriter, I think is very sincere. And I agree with 100 um, percent. And I might not have picked the song he chose, which was Dirty Life and Times. But on the other hand, uh, you know, it's nice to see Warren getting the kind of shake from Dylan here in print that he certainly deserves. So there's that. There are Maybe he should have just written a book about he should have just written a book about Warren Zevon. Well, it would have been interesting. I'm not sure if he would have wanted to, to go in that kind of depth uh, on right. Warren. But like you know, and I mean, and I, th I think the point here is, you know, he's illustrating a lot of you know very old songs that are way out of my my wheelhouse, certainly uh, pre rock era stuff. That I kind of go, well, all right, okay, you know, good, fair enough. You like them, and you're you're talking about how passionate they are all right um you know it's his book and he's trying to lay those things out for all of us uh whoever that may be and let's keep in mind i mean his audience i certainly know this from the various dylan groups out there in the world you know range from kids teenagers to people who are in their 80s like bob is so right. it's a pretty wide group of people and there are people that take pretty much everything dylan says as gospel you know well, he is the Nobel laureate of our time, so he is. He is that. Might as well accept it. <laughs> no, I got. I got no problem with that whatsoever. If he wants to write about sharing the Eagles, who are we to stop him? Right, and I mean the Nobel laureate thing is great. I mean that was for songwriting and completely deserved it, and and that's fine. Uh, you know, th this is really just sort of an adjunct to what he did on the radio show, where he's kind of having fun and. Uh, 
you know, as I say in the piece, kind of wanking off a bit, you know? <laughs> All right. Bob, Bob Dylan wanking off. We'll leave you with that image. It's his new book, Philosophy of Song, is available for you to borrow from a friend who might have <laughs> the library. I'm sure, I'm sure Dylan doesn't need the money. He doesn't care. Tim Sullivan, thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks for the review, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you, Neil. Take care. Bye-bye. Halloween is over, but monsters are still on our TVs. Vampires are a big topic this season, and there are a couple of vampire shows currently running. They're actually reboots of beloved vampire franchises, and contributor Scott Gold has visited these shows and wrote a piece for us about it, and he's here to talk to me about these vampire shows. Hello, Scott. Hey, Neil. Great to be back. Yeah, so vampires is a, is a fine topic for me. I, I, I'm not as afraid of them as I am of werewolves. Like, I am able to watch vampire movies. I, I you know, I, I saw all of True Blood, even though I probably should have stopped after season two. <laughs> um, and I've seen plenty of vampire movies. I haven't seen these particular uh, reboots that you're talking about, but um, but they're, they're both have, well, one of them has, seems to have an audience. The other one is kind of hiding in obscurity. But the first one is uh, the uh, a remake of Anne Rice's Interview with the Vampire, and that's airing now on AMC, I believe. Yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting that they would bring it back. You know, it's it's been uh, been a hot second since Neil Jordan's film came out, and I guess the powers that be decided it was time to uh, to take another look at the material. And they've done some pretty interesting things with it. They've um, you know played true to a lot of you know Rice's original vision, um, but they've also gone in very different directions in a number of ways. So it's it's pretty fascinating if you're a fan of the of the property. Uh, to see what they're doing with it, it's it's kind of like uh, like a parallel universe version of this story almost, because it's not a literal adaptation. Right. Uh, well, that me, said, it, th- it takes place the the the, uh, the movie took place in started in what the 1700s, like old New Orleans, right? Yeah, in the late 1700s, um, outside of New Orleans and in New Orleans. So they have transported uh, through time this this story from the mid-late 1700s to the early 20th century. So I think it starts around 1910, 1911, and the first half of the series is through the Jazz Age. And, uh, you know, it's definitely a time jump, and it's really interesting, you know, instead of, you know, wigs and bodices and all that, you know, we get uh, all of the the Jazz Age fashion and, you know, music and, uh, you know, what that looks like in New Orleans. And I am from and live in New Orleans, so that's a really, really interesting thing to see. I actually, believe it or not, there is a, a prop from Neil Jordan's interview with the vampire film in my house for some reason. Like I can't even remember where I got it. It's just jug, like this clay jug. But uh, you don't get much more New Orleans as a pop culture property than interview with the vampire. I mean, Anne Rice was very famously uh, from New Orleans. She had a sort of vampire themed ball every Halloween at her mansion. I mean, she's a beloved figure in in literary circles. Uh, and, you know, that's an interesting uh, time period in New Orleans history. I mean, the sort of the old, old, you know, New Orleans, sort of the late 1700s, early 1800s, that's sort of your, like, you know, uh, French and voodoo period. But the Jazz Age is a little, you know, that's, that's like Louis Armstrong territory. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Louis Armstrong, General Morton, all these guys. And, uh, and they have the music there, which is great. But uh, the one thing that, as a New Orleanian, that's really fascinating is that they turned... Louis from, you know, this, you know, scion of a plantation uh, family into 
Uh, first of all, he's black, played by Jacob Anderson, who is wonderful as Grey Worm on Game of Thrones. And he does a really, really great job here. And so he's a black Creole guy who's... He is a um, in this show, as, as opposed to in Game of Thrones. Right. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, you know, he's kind of, you know, carved out some territory in the red light district in New Orleans, uh, which is called Storyville at the time. It was a very famous red light district in New Orleans before, um, you know, that got kind of shut down and changed. And it was actually, you know, one of the few places that a black man in America could, you know, make a solid living, albeit it's all the, you know, completely through vice. But, uh, you know, when we meet him, you know, Louis, Louis doing okay. Um, but, uh, you know, his, his family really doesn't like what he's doing. And that's another part of the series is we, we meet Louis's family, mm. you know, he's got a, he's got a brother who's kind of, you know, hyper religious and maybe a little bit, maybe a bit funny in the head and, you know, his m- disapproving mother and his, his, you know, kind of shrew of a sister. And it's like, you know, wow, like he's got, he's got family issues. This is a whole new aspect to the story. Um, but that aspect kind of falls flat once you meet vampires, because as I wrote in my piece, there's no normal family drama that can compete with vampire family drama. Like it doesn't even, it doesn't even rate. Right. Now the cast for this, I mean, look, the, the interview with the vampire movie was Tom Crit, Tom, Tom Crit, Tom Cruise, (laughs) Brad Pitt, and then Kirsten Dunst as their little, uh, their little adopted vampire daughter. I mean, you don't get star power much with much higher wattage than that, either in 1994 or now. Um, so that this cannot keep up. Yeah, it's uh, you know it's going to be difficult. You know, Brad Pitt back when Neil Jordan's film came out wasn't a mega 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 star. He was fairly big, but this was one of the properties that really you know elevated his status. Tom Cruise obviously was Tom Cruise, and Anne Rice famously didn't want to cast him. She was against him be playing Lestat because as she envisioned the character in the novel, he was tall, he was French, her, uh, you know, who she pictured in her head to be cast for the movie was a young Rutger Hauer, but he was a, a little long in the tooth, pun intended, for the role. Um, and so Tom Cruise got it. And after, you know, the movie came out, she, was, she conceded, she was like, okay, he was, he was pretty good. Like, you know, I, I had reservations, but he did a good job. Now in the, the current iteration, we have an Aussie named Sam Reed who absolutely slays it in the role. He does a great job. He is tall, blonde, handsome, French, uh, very like continentally rude, you know, and just he's the he's this really maddening, frustrating, complicated character that Rice writes about in her books that was a little bit difficult to get across in, in Neil Jordan's film, but since we have a little bit more time to play with the character as a series, uh, we get to explore those uh, character traits. And it really does pay off. Uh, Reed really, really does a great job, as does Jacob Anderson with Louis. Obviously, it's a different kind of take on the character, but I think he does a wonderful job. Uh, he does a good job with the, with the accent. And um, where it falls... Sadly, flat is with uh, the character of Claudia, who Kirsten Dunst played famously in Neil Jordan's film. And here it's just uh, it's frustratingly miscast because Bailey Bass, who I'm sure is a is a lovely actor. um, She just she's not right for the part. She's a little too old. She's 19 years old in Rice's novel. Claudia's five in Neil Jordan's film. She's 10 and casting, uh, you know, an almost 20 year old to play a child is going to be a little problematic. 
if she has Andrea Zuckerman syndrome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit. I did think about that. I was like, you know, wasn't Andrea, wasn't she like, you know, 35 playing a high schooler? But for some reason, that was a little bit more believable. You know, she's almost as tall as Jacob Anderson. Uh, and that really makes it difficult to to suspend your disbelief. And another thing she just, as a Southerner, it's really, really difficult to hear bad Southern accents on screen. And uh, and And this was one for the ages, like, Honestly, like it just makes me wince when I hear it. You know, it's up there with Dennis Quaid and the Big Easy. Like, it's pretty, pretty, pretty rough. Um, I was going to say, I think this is a good point um, to transition into another vampire girl. Uh, the uh, the the Showtime series, Let the Right One In, which I don't think is getting as much uh, press as Interview with the Vampire, and it's not as a you know a, as well known a property. But this is sort of a, a it was a Scandinavian. Um, vampire movie that then was remade unsuccessfully in the states, and now now they rebooted this again. I guess I guess there's a the, the concept is appealing to people who make uh, content. Yeah, you know it's uh, it was I haven't read the novel, but the original Swedish version of the film is absolutely brilliant. It's a cult classic. If anybody out there listening hasn't seen the Swedish version of Let the Right One In, highly, highly, highly recommend. Has one of the best payoff scenes at the end. Um, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but it's just so uh, it's just so well shot and it's so like gripping. It's just so great. And the American version was a a painfully literal adaptation of the Swedish film. Um, you know, not quite into Gus Van Sant's psycho territory where they did it shot for shot, but closely, um, you know, they just changed the actors and the language for the most part. And, uh, and you know, that made it a little lackluster and maybe made people find a little less interest um, in the story. What's really, really fascinating is what they're doing with the reboot. Um, a lot of the basic elements are there, but they've expanded on the idea in really, really cool ways and added really interesting new characters and plot arcs that uh, take the story to a new level. And it's, I think it's a really, really cool show and one of the best shows on TV that a lot of people aren't watching right now. And the premise is that there's a, a girl, she's 10, 12, something like that. She's 12. She's 12, and uh, she is a recent, she's a, in the movie, she was an old, she was like an older vampire who was uh, being cared for by an old man who, who had once been her, her father, younger father, is that? It was, yeah, it was her childhood friend, oh. and of course, because the vampires don't age, the childhood friend got older, she didn't, and so the childhood friend started you know, kind of, you know, pretending to be her father so they could still be together. And the key was that, you know, her companion had to, you know, find a way to feed her and care for her. And that means murdering lowlifes and, you know, collecting the blood in a jug to bring back to his, his vampire uh, love. And those elements are still here. However, um, Ellie, the vampire, um, and I forget the name of the actress, but she's wonderful uh, in this role, uh, as the young vampire, uh, her father, Damien Bashir, is her actual father of the character. And she gets turned into a vampire and the father wants to find a way to cure her uh, and is just desperate to find this out. So I think at this point, she's been 12 years old for maybe about 10 years, which is a long time to be 12 years old, but it's not like hundreds of years. She's not an ancient vampire. And the story really picks up as it did in the Swedish version where she befriends a young kind of nerdy, bully, bullied boy who lives next door named Isaiah. Um, 
and you know the story picks up from there. Now, <laughs> the very convenient part for the plot is that uh, Isaiah's mom happens to be a New York City uh, homicide detective, um, which is a bad person to move in next door to when you're you know going around murdering drug dealers to feed your vampire or daughter. Couldn't just work so. at the DMV or something. I know, like that's a little too convenient. But you know, I was willing to accept that. Um, and also, uh, you know, small spoiler here for anybody who doesn't, you know, want to be spoiled, you can turn the volume down right now. But um, uh, the father, Mark, winds up murdering someone who he thinks is just a drug dealer and turns out to surprise be Isaiah's father, <laughs> you know, the ex husband of the homicide detective. So that's another really just uh, a little too coincidental, you know, a little bit of plot armor. But that's again, little, I'm willing to. A little take writer's roomy to me. Scott. Yes, very writer's room. All right, so you have, basically, you have two reboots um, of classic vampire uh, properties that are, you know, they've been TVIs that are sort of a mixed bag, but they both sound like they're worth checking out. I did a little research, Scott, um, and I don't know if you uh, know what the, uh, do you know what the um, interview with the vampire is called in France, what they're calling it in France? It, it's called Interview with no. the Vampire. No, no, Interview with the Vampire. Oh, right. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'll be here all week. Scott will be here soon to talk about more pop culture properties. My puns never stop. Scott, I'll talk to you soon. Uh, I, I would uh, just, um, you know, stay out of a, stay out of the French Quarter like at four in the morning. That's just good advice in general. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially now that vampires are a play. We'll talk to you soon. Oh, yeah. All right. Thanks a lot, Neil. The Jeopardy Tournament of Champions, the long-awaited Tournament of Champions, is finally up and running, uh, as I talked to you this week. And by the time you're listening to it, it may actually be over. But it, people have been waiting for this tournament for a long time because there have been a bunch of Super champions during the post-Alex Trebek era, and uh, Jeopardy has been as lively as ever. And now the TOC is here, and I have Daniel Cohen with me to talk about it. Uh, hello, Daniel. Hi there, Neil. How are you? I'm fine. I've been enjoying the TOC. Now, Daniel is, and I are here to talk about trivia because um, you all may not know that uh, both of us have appeared on Jeopardy. We also um, play a lot of competitive trivia online and offline, sometimes, usually on the team, together but sometimes against each other so you know we can go pretty deep pretty deep into the weeds in terms of trivia knowledge and, and trivia strategy so uh, i feel like we're pretty well qualified to uh analyze the tournament of champions so uh, here we go the toc so daniel why don't you explain to these folks um these folks whatever it's so folksy of me to say uh, <laughs> exactly what is new and different about the tournament of champions this time around Sure. So they expanded the format this year from its normal um, 15 person format into what's essentially a uh, 21 person format with a feeder with a couple of feeder tournaments that, that uh, fed into it. There was a second chance tournament that ran the last couple of weeks in which they brought in contestants who had had really good performances against some of these super champions who won, you know, 10 up to 40 games. And we gave them a second shot. And so we had two new, two new contestants who did not win their way into the TOC through t- traditional channels, but did win the second chance tournament uh, playing in this in this past week. Uh, so there are six preliminary games, and then the winners of those go in to play three semifinals against the, uh, the three longest reigning super champions of the season. 
who all got buys. And then from there, the three of those play in the finals. Matt Amodio, Amy Schneider, and Mateo Roach, all of whom won 20-plus games. And, you know, right. pretty much uh, they, they changed the landscape. There's never been that kind of a run from that many people before. So, all right. So, we basically, as you and I are talking, we have watched a week. We watched the second chance tournaments, which were entertaining Jeopardy games of good players. And, yeah. and then we I would I would say it was, it was a higher, slightly higher quality play than the average uh, Jeopardy game. And then we watched the uh, the first week of the first round of the TOC. And, you know, there were some good games and some good performances. But I got to say, I think you and I have talked about this. I was a little disappointed in in the quality of the play. There was yeah. a, lot, there were a lot of bad misses, a lot of sort of weird no gets. Like they didn't know who Cheap Trick was. I mean, come on. I want to be really, really careful in being critical here because, you know, neither you nor I have ever been in this position before. So we don't know, you know, you sort of sound like, uh, you sound like Rex Reed when he's, when he's, re when he's reviewing a movie with an unconventional plot line, like, you know, it's, I don't get it. <laughs> Look, um, I mean, this, you know, it's not a personal criticism of anyone who's on the show. No. I mean, at all, at all. I mean, this is not a personality review. I mean, there's only two distinctly evil people who have ever been on Jeopardy and that's Arthur Chu and James Holzhauer. Um, that's correct. And, and both of whom were super champions, but who were like villains that, you know, would make Emperor Palpatine uh, proud. Right. So uh, none of these players, all of whom earned well earned their way into the TOC, um, you know, I'm not criticizing them as human beings. And, and, they, and Arthur and James embraced their villainy, too, to an extent. That was sort of their shtick, their heel personas. And as far as I can tell, nobody in this TOC is doing that. They all seem like very nice people. So let's just get those caveats out of the way. But, you know, again, like, I just was like, well, it just was, I mean, there were, again, there were some people who played extremely well and who went really hard in the paint and with the daily doubles and who knew a lot of stuff. But there, yeah. there were also some uh, misses and there were just some games that were just, well, the, just games were a little lackluster, I guess. The question, the question for me going in that I, I think we've kind of answered already is, is like, with with all these super champions in, in the past year and a half or so, you know, is the quality of those champions so much higher than usual, or is the normal quality caliber of a Jeopardy contestant a little bit lower? And I think it's it's very clear at this point that the latter is probably truer than the former. Um, I, you know, I've, again, I've been saying all along, I feel like the field on average, I mean, again, these great players would have been great in any era, and the good players sure. would have been good any in any era but i do feel like the field in general has been softer you know and that you know there are uh and we've seen this in in the you know the, the one game that you and i watched today the game that aired on friday those were three players playing hard playing well not missing much you know and getting yeah that to, 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 to today's game which was yeah erica hasek versus jessica and singer versus jerry kelly was a rocking game probably the best of the first week so far back by a mile. It was, the closest. it was the closest among, you know, the best Jeopardy games yeah. are the ones where you got three players who are going at it and like when things are yeah. like getting batted back and forth. You know, there were a couple other games that also I thought that there was the game between Andrew Key and Jonathan Fisher, um, you know, and, and Christine Welchel. A Andrew and um, and Jonathan Fisher both, played, you know, they were, they were, it was pretty yeah. neck and neck. Had a had a good finish with a smart wager. You know, they're, again, I wouldn't say that, you know, yeah. this is hardly the worst Jeopardy play I've ever seen, but I, I, I don't know. I think you're and right. I have to, I, 
I have to I have, I have to shout out Rowan Ward, who's a friend of ours, um, who they got very, very unlucky in their game against John Folk, who who pulled back to back daily doubles and pretty much put put the game away with, you know, half the board left in double jeopardy, yeah. which is just But that's the jeopardy strategy, right? You get the daily doubles, you make a big bet. I mean, that's the only way to really guarantee you're gonna win that game because Rowan yeah. Ward who won one of the uh, second chance tournaments was playing at a very high level. They had, uh, I, I mentioned this in the article by, by some statistical analysis, one of the top 60 Jeopardy games of all time during the second chance tournament. Yeah. Um, they, and they, we, were un, they were, un, they, were un, un, they were unbelievable. And I've, I've known them for a while and the, the level of improvement in their game over the last couple of years has been really tremendous. So, well, we're referring to Rowan Ward as they because they uh, are a non-binary person. Yeah, um, and this, this is someone who uh, you play with. Um, I'm, I don't, I yeah. don't think I've played with Rowan online, but you you know them from um, online trivia. Yeah, both. Yeah, right? and, and 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 they're an extremely sweet person who uh, is is very involved in the community. So a lot of people. That we know we're rooting for them, and and it was it was yeah kind of kind of, kind of if I had a, a if I had a horse in this race it was definitely them and, and so well, uh, right and you picked them to win well, to to win their game and you know I think that was more of a I mean it wasn't a bad choice honestly but it was like a more of a sentimental pick than anything else and you know here here's the thing though the way Rowan performed right that to me is uh, indicative of how studying and practicing yes. trivia as, as, a, as a sport can really pay off, right? Because these games that we play are tough. I mean, we're talking trivia that would be way I've, too hard for average Jeopardy. I've, I've, I've actually talked to them about this, and, and I've actually talked to somebody who knows the uh, current reigning champion uh, pre-tournament, this guy, Chris Panulo. And in both cases, they've just done a ton of flashcards and a ton of rote memorization, and it really does pay off. So it, it yeah. seems like the sort of like uh, the studying methods are becoming more concrete as far as what you need to do to be, to go from being a, a very good trivia player to a near elite one. Do we have to do flashcards? I hate flashcards. I, I do too. And I, and I don't, and I don't, I don't do them as part of my preparation, but it, it really does seem to make a difference. Everybody I know who cards pretty extensively uh, is real good, <laughs> you know? Can you make them digitally? Because I don't want to. I may have terrible. Yeah, there's a, so there's a website called Anki that uh, you can you can create your own flashcard decks on and uh, download ones other people have made and sort of trade them oh, back yeah? and forth and that kind of thing. Yeah. All right, all right. Well, let's share that with me later. Because yeah, because at this point there is a there's a training regimen. Um, right. You know, I don't. We haven't reached the uh, Tom Brady, LeBron James, um, you know, million dollar personal fitness instructor. Uh, getting your body ready to play trivia. But maybe we'll get to that too. Maybe they'll, <laughs> maybe they'll start being some brain fuel. And you got to get, at this point, you got to have an answer. Actually, I don't think that's, that's, that's not really true yet because as we've seen, there's a very small percentage of players at the top who are elite, right? Yeah. And it, it still hasn't quite trickled down. But in these online trivia communities that you and I are part of, you can see players who decide, like, all right, I'm going to be the best at this, and they do it. Right. Yeah, it's not It's not an accident, right? Like, there is, like, like, like I mentioned, it, it's it's primarily a rote memorization thing. I mean, you have to be interested in it, too, right? Like, I don't do any memorization. I'm a pretty good player. I'd probably be a better player. You know, you're a very good player. Um, and, I, you know, I oh, have thanks. my moments. 
well, yeah, and I, you know, I have my moments and I have um, certain categories that I completely dominate in and there's other stuff where I'm completely clueless. But, you know, like yeah. we are playing in a game last week and there were like four questions about Park Chan-wook movies. And I'm like, I'm the editor of Book and Film Globe. We just did a decision to leave segment. Like I watched so, the Alamo Draft pre-show. I, I just, I just, I didn't, I missed one of them, but I destroyed them. Nobody else so had any funny. idea. What's funny about what's funny about that category? So I, I I played the same game and then I read I read that game for other people last night actually, and those were some of the hardest questions in the entire game. Um, I played a dude named Dan Burgess, who's a, a very expert film player, who you know, in my in my game only one of the Park Chan Wook questions went dead, but it sounds like all four have been going dead in pretty much every other game where, where it's been played because people just don't know The Handmaid and don't people know movies. They don't go to the movies anymore. Yeah, yeah, and that and that's a, that's obviously a different topic, but um, that's that surprised me that played as, as hard as it did because I, I feel like Park Chan-wook is pretty canon. But again, well, okay, so you know, we're, we're, perhaps we're going off in the weeds a little bit here. You know, the, the <laughs> point is they're, they're probably not going to ask a Park Chan-wook question in the Jeopardy Tournament of Champions. But let, let, let's now that we're through. There's still one more first round game. Let's actually talk about Matt Amodio and Amy Schneider and Matea Roach. Now, I was really yes. surprised. I was really surprised to notice that um, Jeopardy had added an exhibition game among the three of them. Uh, um, yeah. Before, which is, talk about playing their hand. It's obvious that one of them, at least one of them, doesn't make well, it through to the Because why would you do that? Counter argument is that it's election night. So oh, okay. well, it's it yeah. could be kind of it could be kind of programming. It could be a game that gets preempted in a lot of places. Like in in my town, uh, the first four games of the TOC were preempted for World Series pregame shows, one of which was never played. Um, right. <laughs> so so there's that. I mean, I I don't know. It's it's it, I I do have that hunch as well. Maybe that they're they're not going to get the matchup of the three best of the best that they have been sort of telegraphing. Um, well, you can't really, can, you, you can't, first of all, some of the players in, in these, in these uh, quarterfinals have been very good, and there's yeah. no reason why um, one of them can't get one of those two daily double in a row, um, yeah. you know, runs and just knock someone out just by doubling up their score. At, you know, a, cer- not- at, a, at, at a certain point, it becomes mathematically impossible. There just aren't enough clues left on the board to... Right. And, know, and okay. the, um, you know, and the... Uh, you know, Amy Schneider had a huge edge on. I mean, first of all, I think she, that she is going to win the whole thing because Amy Schneider's one. I just, I've, there've been maybe two or three players ever who were as good as Amy. But you know, it is possible that someone could hop in there and just you know b- bounce her just by going on a daily double run. I mean, the the yeah. edge is not, the edge is not nearly as pronounced as as it was during the regular season. You know, this is so like one thing. One thing, one thing I've I've noticed during both the second chance tournament and the TOC is that pretty much everybody's playing the game the same way, which is starting off with the high value clues and going back up, um, which is the correct way to play it in 2022. But it, it may sort of alleviate some of the element of surprise that that Matamodio had from playing that way during his streak and Amy had during hers. I'm hope you know. What do you think, Daniel? Do you think like second the second chance tournaments were for people for this season? But do you think they'll go back in the archives and Pick especially like attractive and charismatic older men from previous seasons who won games, but no problem, you know. If they do, my voicemail is open. So, 
Yeah, I'm just there's there's a hashtag campaign to be waged. I would, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm not. I'm. I ain't hold. I ain't, I ain't holding my breath that they're gonna come after a third place finisher from 2011. But hey, man, there's flashcards. You gotta flash it. <laughs> like, maybe maybe that's what, maybe that's what it'll take to get me to do it. Yeah. Your de- your destiny uh, your destiny still awaits, and the Jeopardy Tournament of Champions is uh, is on TV now. All right. I'll, I'll I'll be texting you after every game like like I was this week. All right. Later. Alright. Alright. Thanks, Daniel. I still can't believe that people didn't know on Jeopardy. They couldn't answer a cheap question about Cheap Trick, and they didn't know that Ron Santo played for the Chicago Cubs. This feels like foundational knowledge to me. But then again, I am an aging man who lived in Chicago for a long time and those are both Chicago based trivia questions. Regardless, thanks to Daniel Cohen for talking to me about the excellent Jeopardy Tournament of Champions ongoing now. Also thanks to Scott Gold for talking to me about the vampire TV that is on TV right now. And thanks to Jim Sullivan for stopping in to talk about the new Bob Dylan book, Philosophy of Song. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. You can find us at www. You can find us at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We publish fresh content nearly every day. We do this show nearly every week. And we are nearly the greatest podcast in the history of podcasts. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you soon. You can buy the books discussed on the Book and Film Globe podcast at The Book House, Book and Film Globe's independent bookstore. Go to the Bookhouse Milburn, M-I-L-L-B-U-R-N.com to shop online and support small independent booksellers. Or visit our actual physical site in Milburn, New Jersey, where you can buy books from all the authors featured on The Dark Word and the Book and Film Globe podcasts. The Bookhouse Milburn.com.